Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. It's been a bit longer again than I would have liked um, between this episode and the last one. That's just, I had stuff arranged but technical problems and stuff meant that those episodes didn't happen so that's frustrating but hey here's another one. I'd like to say the next one's going to be coming much sooner but I'm going to be away for a couple of weeks so I don't know but I'm going to try and have something arranged for as soon as I get back so I'll get the next one out as as quickly as I can. Before I get on to today's episode I've first of all just got to say thank you very much to Rich who is my first subscriber on Patreon so that's fantastic and uh, yeah I really do appreciate that. If anyone else would like to sling a quid or two my way for the work I do for this podcast you can do that at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. I think that's it. That sounds right. Yeah a lot of work does go into this in terms of um, reading books, taking notes, doing research, uh, arranging interviews, doing interviews, editing the podcast. It takes me many, many, many hours. So if you can afford to chuck a couple of quid my way for that and feel inclined to do so, then yeah, yeah, that would be great. If you don't want to do that, that's fine. Perhaps you could just give me a review on iTunes instead. That would be cool. I often listen to podcasts that ask me to give them a review and then I don't bother doing it. So you're probably going to do that as well. But then every now and again, I think, you know, I listen to this podcast every week. They ask me to give them a view. It's only going to take me a minute to do that. So I will. And I hope that you will think that too. So yeah, a rating or review on iTunes or something would be cool if you could take a moment to do that. Also, it'd be great to hear from more of you on what I'm doing. Like, If you've got any comments uh, of stuff I've done on previous episodes, if you've got something mm-hmm. interesting to say about subjects I've covered, let me know. Like, Perhaps that's stuff that I can read out on the podcast like the following episode. So um, email me, utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. Tweet me at utopianhorizons. Um, yeah, it's nice to hear. I've only heard from like one or two people what they think of the podcast. It's nice to get feedback if you've got anything to say. But yeah, like any comments you've got that if you want to make a point that I've missed on something of an episode that, you know, I can read that out. If you've got a question about something I've covered, um, I don't know if I'll be able to answer it, but feel free to ask and I'll try and answer those questions on the next episode. Anyway, enough of all that stuff. Let's get on to today's episode. Um, This episode is about Neuromancer, a novel by William Gibson. Very, very influential uh, novel credited with being one of the founding texts of the genre that is cyberpunk. Joining me to talk about Neuromancer is Anna McFarlane. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Glasgow and she actually wrote a PhD thesis on William Gibson and his novels. So she's the perfect person to have on for this uh, to discuss it. Incidentally, she also edited a book on the work of Adam Roberts, who was on the last episode. So if you're interested in science fiction, uh, Adam Roberts and, you know, science fiction criticism, then check that out. It's called Adam Roberts Critical Essays. So yeah, have a look at that. Anyway, on to my conversation with Anna. So joining me now to talk about Neuromancer is Anna McFarlane. Thank you very much for joining me, Anna. Thanks very much for having me on, Paul. So... Neuromancer, uh, a very famous novel written by William Gibson, um, published in 1984. We are going to talk about plot spoilers in this, so if that bothers you, then read the book beforehand. Um, So we're just going to go all in on on everything. 
I'm going to attempt a brief summary of the book before we get into the details because I think I think that's helpful, uh, even as a reminder to people who've who've haven't read the book for a while. So this book is set in the future. I don't think a specific year is mentioned in the book. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. So it tells the story of Case, who's a formal former console cowboy in the game in the um, novels parlance, which basically means a hacker. He's no able to no longer able to jack into cyberspace because his central nervous system's been damaged by uh, some kind of chemical compound as retribution for him stealing from a former employer. So he starts off as like a low level hustler and a drug addict in Chiba, Japan, um, sleeping in these like cheap coffin rooms, um, which. Uh, incidentally we talked about real coffin cubicles in a previous episode on architecture episode i don't know if that's something that gibson predicted or something that already existed but that's uh, interesting anyway um so he's approached by a guy called armitage and offered a job that he's not particularly given much details for and he's promised that his problem of not being able to jack into cyberspace will be cured he also working for Armitage is Molly, who's a cybernetically enhanced bodyguard slash assassin slash badass. And they later in the novel they get another team member called Riviera who can produce hallucinations that other people can see. And basically the novel is about a heist that they have to undertake that requires them to work together to free an AI who you find out during the course of the novel who's is actually the one that's uh, controlling them. So I think that's about it i think it's a decent summary um, that's hopefully. pretty good yeah you okay. covered the main points there <laughs> yeah so the first thing i wanted to ask you about is this book is very significant because of its influence on cyberpunk it's credited as being a founding text of cyberpunk which is obviously its own utopian dystopian genre so could you first of all talk about what that is that what what is cyberpunk what are its key features uh yeah sure so yeah like you say it's credited as being one of the first that's um certainly the most successful cyberpunk novel and i think if you want to think about cyberpunk it's easiest to think about it in terms of the name let's split it apart so the cyber and cyberpunk comes from cybernetics so we're thinking about here how networks and specifically computer networks but we can think about any kind of network and how meaning emerges from that network, how these networks bring order to different systems. So that's kind of the cyber part of that. And then the punk part of it is that more anarchic, the chaotic side of things. So we're talking about um, reappropriating things. We're talking about taking, taking things that had a specific purpose and reworking them to turn them back on their heads. So that's the excitement, I think, of the the term cyberpunk and why it became such a such a romantic idea for a lot of people because it was that um, that clash between the order of cybernetics and the chaos of punk. There's something very attractive about fusing those two opposite things together into one whole that then became uh, a question about how much it was a, a literary genre. Some people say it was kind of over as soon as it was given a name, but it certainly has been influential and. Uh, yeah, that's why I think it's still of interest to a lot of people today and to science fiction and even to society as a whole, given how science fictional our society has become. Mm. I wouldn't certainly wouldn't say it's over. Um, well, perhaps you could say as a literary genre, perhaps, you know, faded and somewhat. But if you look at like video games and films and so on, like, it's still very much um, prevalent. Oh, yeah, it's it's so influential and it's absolutely everywhere. But just as a kind of distinct 
moment of literature. I think that it's not necessarily something that you can draw a line around so much as maybe people try to right at the start. You know, the, um, the big um, manifesto of cyberpunk was called the Mirror Shades Anthology, brought together by Bruce Sterling himself, a cyberpunk writer, and it's considered to be the kind of quintessential cyberpunk collection, but also has it like marked its end as a distinct moment, a subculture that was actually a bunch of writers that were talking to each other specifically rather than being something that's diffused throughout the whole culture. Mm. And certainly like I think whenever you start talking about that genre, you can always you can always go back and say, oh, actually, there's bits of it here and bits of that there. You can do that with cyberpunk. Like, you can say, oh, there's bits of it in Philip K. Dick. And you can go all the way back to Alfred Bester in the 50s and say, that, oh, there's a bit of cyberpunk there, which is, in a sense, true. But I do think cyberpunk has its own feel. You've already touched on some of the things that tends to come up a lot in cyberpunk so proliferation of technology cyberspace or the internet corporate power is really important mm-hmm. post-humanism there's always this like you mentioned like the punk bit this kind of gap between people that te- tends to focus on like outcasts or people at the periphery criminals and then you always have you often have the super rich in it as well um i wonder if you think that's like one of the things that accounts for like the popularity of cyberpunk is it to me kind of seems representative of what was happening at the time in terms of like the gap between the rich and the poor technological development and so on yeah definitely i think that you know you can it, when you read neuromancer you can feel that kind of vegan era kind of you know this is like yuppie culture this is people that are making loads of money in skyscrapers and certain um hubs of activity and it's just extrapolating that out and thinking well what happens if globalization actually takes hold, the free market actually takes hold in the way that it's being envisioned, then this is the kind of thing that can happen is these cross cross national zybatsus as they're called in the novel, but the corporations that stretch beyond national boundaries so that nation states don't have so much power anymore. It's actually all within the corporations. And I think, you know, reading it now in the in twenty seventeen, I think we could see that that's something that's become so much more of a concern. As time has gone by, it has actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about the predictive powers of science fiction because I don't yeah. think that's its point. But I think yeah. that it is in the years after when Brexit's ongoing and we've got all this, like you know, Trump and the anti-globalization uh, movement that's coming from the right. I think it's a very interesting time to be reading the romance and to see that these concerns were were going on back then, and it was if not predicted, certainly that it was in the air what was going to happen. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, one more thing that I wanted to just touch on before we get into the detail on, on Neuromancer itself. Do you have any idea as to why cyberpunk so often tends to be associated or tinged with Asian culture and visual imagery, you know, like neon lights and so on? I mean, do you think that's in part just because of Blade Runner? Or Well... Gibson was already writing Neuromancer. It was already at quite an advanced stage when he went to see Blade Runner in the cinema. And the story goes that he had to leave the cinema because it was too much like he was seeing what was already inside his own head and he was worried it was going to contaminate this world of Neuromancer that he was trying to create in his novel. So it's something that happened simultaneously in more than one brain at the time. This kind of, um, I don't know if you would say a co-option of Japanese culture, but certainly a use of Japanese imagery and yeah, various artifacts to kind of connote difference and to connote the future. So 
uh, yeah, I think that's partly why it is. It's just because Japanese culture is so different. Obviously, there's a lot of history about why that is, that Japan's grown as such an isolationist country, and that's why they have so many interesting cultural formations. So I think that's partly why it's used here as a kind of way of signifying perhaps the exotic, certainly the way that cultures bleed into each other after globalizations happen. So obviously Japanese mm, um, and yeah. culture, uh, Japanese corporations in the 80s were becoming more and more successful. So I think that's to show that their corporate culture has spread all over the world and they've brought other things with them as well. So yeah, I think there have been criticisms of this use of Japan because it could be seen as Western writers using Japan as just a shorthand to say, look how alien the future is by using Japan as a shorthand for that. But I do think it is also partly a kind of socioeconomic commentary about how people adopt other cultures when when money starts to flow, so do the cultures flow out as well. Mm. Okay, well, let's get into talking about um, the kind of world that is depicted in Neuromancer itself. So something that you've already mentioned there is kind of its global nature. Um, I think it's a very... Um, very good reflection in many ways of like late capitalism or neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, as you said, where the borders are fluid and products are made and transported all over the world. So even very early on in the novel, you're starting with an American in Japan. You have this, um, you have the bartender called Rats, who uh, there's a line in there. He saw a case and smiled. His teeth are webwork of East European steel. He's got a prosthetic arm, which is Russian. There's an Australian there talking about Chinese nerve splicing. The first thing he sees when he goes into lands on this space station called Freeside is a coffee franchise. So that's repeated throughout this idea of different uh, products and people from different places moving around. So, so do you think part of what defines cyberpunk and what makes it important and relevant is this? I think it is. In my opinion, I don't know if you agree with this, I think it's a genre that in some ways is kind of obsessed with capitalism and about capitalism. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of the the love of the genre and the criticism of the genre both actually come from, is that, to me, it's cyberpunk is kind of this contradiction. Like I said at the start, it's a mixture of this the order of the cybernetic network and the chaos of punk. And I think that's partly what comes out of this. Like you say, it's a slew of details about this thing from this part of the world, this thing from this part of the world, everything is very described. And there's almost, sometimes when you read a cyberpunk novel, it's almost like a wall of information. Like it can be hard to actually understand what's physically going on in the novel in terms of the plot because there's so much detail. And I think that that has a dual purpose. One of those things is that it's like this excitement about a kind of globalization or you could even say multiculturalism multiculturalism you could say that Mm. it's the excitement of mashing together all these different influences to see what you get but also then it can it can become almost um i think suffocating there's two sides to that there's the the craziness of running through cyberspace and seeing all of these different things that are available all over the world but there's also a sense that there's a history behind everything and these people in uh, the sprawl as it's called in the novel these kind of areas of people just trying to scrape by based on whatever they can find, whatever technology is available to them. I think that there's an origin of all of these different things that they're working with and that can become almost suffocating, this debris of history behind everything that goes on. Um, so yeah, I think that's, there, there are two sides to it. There's the way you're weighted down by the past 
but that excitement of what you can do with that debris when you mash it all up together and see what happens. Mm. Could you, could you t- talk a bit about the significance of corporate power in you know, Neuromancer and I guess in Cyberpunk in general? Because I, so I've read a, I read a bit of your um, thesis and you were talking about uh, the Zobatsus, as you say, like these big corporations and how they almost become like organisms. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was interested in my thesis and I've been interested in my work is how post-humanism is kind of portrayed in these books. So different, it's not just humans that have consciousness and agency, it's different kind of um, organisations. So yeah, the corporations or the media is another thing in the novel that has its own personality and its own desires and obviously then artificial intelligence as well it's all things that have their own um, direction so I think with the uh, corporations that there's kind of once again I think that there's two sides to this it's kind of uh, horrific actually it's one of the dystopian factors of the novel is that these cyberaxes tend to have all this power and obviously there's no accountability and it even says at one point in the novel that even if you chop off the head of the person at the top, there's going to be somebody a level down that's going to come up and take their place. So it's these corporations have personhood and they can't be killed and they can't be controlled from outside. They've kind of got a will of their own. And it, it almost is like a solidification of that invisible hand of the marketplace, I suppose, that these corporations are only going to do what needs to do to extend their power and to increase the amount of money that they have and the amount of control. But then... My argument is and has been that there's a kind of utopian flicker of light within that um, conception, which is that if these Ibatsus can take on personhood and become a new kind of entity, clearly we see that in a negative light in the novel, but it also is a possibility for something new to emerge from these kind of systems that and maybe a new kind of way could happen, a new kind of consciousness, like perhaps the artificial intelligences, they can come out of it as well. So it's not just... Um, being stuck in the same old cycles of um, humans fighting humans, there might be something new that comes along and with something new, there can always be hope. It doesn't have to be all doom gloom. Yeah. So you've been in the sense that like it's like a new form of power. It's not like it's not solidified, so there's still possibility in terms of like how it can play yeah. out. Yeah. Everything's still up in the air to an extent because new things are happening and no one quite knows how to deal with that. And that's it's scary and that's why the novel reads dystopian but I think that there is also hope in it as well and there's also try it's just trying to come through those old uh, systems of power yeah mm. I think that that idea of like the Zobatsus that you know these as these organisms that like you say you can like kill the guy at the top or maybe a few executives but then it just people replace it, it just continues on it really I think represents the kind of corporate power we have now in the way that you think that how capitalism and corporations insulate power from consequence like it's very hard to pin responsibility on people when bad things happen so if you think recently mm-hmm. like hsbc were implicated in like money laundering and so in this case they did face some kind of consequence and they were fined but there was no criminal charges, so like nobody, nobody who was involved in doing that actually faced any consequence. And you, you think of things like the financial crash. Clearly, people, certain people, did things that made that more likely to happen, or created a, created a kind of situation where that could happen. But it's very hard to actually say who is to 
blame with that so that you get these really complex systems and it kind of insulates power from consequence does that make sense yeah absolutely it totally does and um and i think that we see that repeatedly throughout the world as well you know that was just a couple of years ago that you know america has this idea of corporate personhood and whether a corporation can be treated as a person mm. and they found in court that yes they should be and that their money should therefore be protected by freedom of speech laws so that corporations can you know give money in any way they want to different political parties because to do otherwise would be to stifle the freedom of speech of that corporate person so i think that yeah you can almost use this as a guidebook of how to get away with things when you're a corporation really you know just turn yourself into a person and take on those human rights and yeah, there's a lot of uh, things that people can get away with in corporations, thanks for that. So that's the way you're talking about, isn't it, right? You're talking about a corporation becoming like an organism, and there you have it. They've got the rights of an organism. So, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about the... Because in, in the novel, so there is this kind of corporate, corporate power we've talked about, but there's a deliberate attempt to contrast that like new corporate power with the Tessia Ashpools. So the Tessia Ashpools are like this this family who have a, um, I don't know what to call it, like a, a base of operations or where they live or whatever, which is on a space station called Freeside. And they have like their isolated section called Straylight where they where they keep various members of the family in like, cryogenic isolation and bring bring them out every now and again. They like repeatedly have this motive of a, a, as a flashback to Case remembering like a wasp's nest that he knocked down and burned. And it's repeatedly like compared to that. And this place is like full of decaying detritus of, I, I would describe it as re- stuff that represents like an old European style of power, like old mm-hmm. carpets and books and antiques that are there, like just rotting away. So I just wanted to ask you, what it, what is it that Gibson's trying to represent there and what's he trying to bring out in the contrast between the Tessie Rashpools and like this new corporate power? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So like you say, there's the Europe versus America, so this old European model that it's almost like... Um, a, a royal dynasty that's yeah. going on with the Tessier Ashfields because yeah, there's just generations of them handing the power along, and um, there's uh, a bit of incest that goes on. There's yeah, so they clone each other as well, so that they can continue the generations without actually even having to um, bring anyone else into the family. So cloning here is just kind of a an even more insular way to keep power within the one family. So there is an old world, new world contrast that goes on there and I think that there's also bearing back on what I'm saying about kind of new forms of consciousness like the Zybatsus or like the artificial intelligence I think that this is a specific way of trying to bring out how the old forms of consciousness where the understanding of that is based in the body and in uh, genetics here but I think that yeah if you think about how a human being is understood as being a human being because they're a consciousness within that within that body and there's a connection there. Mm. The, that connection has started to become weaker when cyberspace comes on the scene and when these new forms of intelligence start to appear. So I think that that's to contrast that, the old form of consciousness that was necessarily attached to this human body and the old form of power that was necessarily attached to that human body and how it procreates and other people who carry that same genetic code versus the new forms of power, Zybatsus and artificial intelligence that care not for whether they even have a physical body. It's a much more 
a, a much more powerful form of power that's dispersed across networks, and that is seen as being the future of what's actually going to happen, for better or worse. The Tessie Ashpills are going to be stuck in the past and they're going to die out. Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about crime as well, because I found it quite interesting the way the criminal underworld in this, it basically reflects like the capitalist logic or ideals. So Case talks about the biz, um, biz is like this constant subliminal hum and as you read, as you mentioned actually this all the this idea of like all these different um, products and like technologies from different places and it, it, it's depicted as dystopian but as you suggested there is kind of excitement about it like he's excited by the the hustle and yeah, it's interesting to me that he explicitly talks about the black market underworld as being like an experiment in social darwinism so mm there's a sense that the criminal underworld basically just reflects like hardcore capitalists same ideals and principles like it goes quite right across the society if you see what i mean yeah totally i think the word reflects is right but like reflecting it with a twist i think is that you know there's the um the metaphor of the shuriken that he uses in the novel so in case people listen don't know the shurikens that um it's a star-shaped many-pointed blade that you find in them I don't know how common it is in real Japan, but in Japanese ninja movies anyway, it's quite yeah, common. I'm sure there's loads of tourist shops in Japan that sell them, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And that's exactly where Case sees this shuriken in the window of this shop. And it looks sounds like quite a cheesy type thing. Like they're all laid out on this fabric so that you can see all these different stars there. And they're embossed with different things like dragons and, you know, other cheesy kind yeah, of Asian tacky. associated symbols. Yeah, totally. And he says something about the neon lights that are twisted in these stars and kind of given back to him. I think that that's, in a way, a metaphor for what cyberpunk is doing and specifically with what it's doing with the market. So these stars, these shuriken, these cheap tacky commodities reflecting this light, these, Case says that these are the stars that he's traveling under. So whereas, you know, older golden age science fiction might have been traveling to the actual stars, you know, these uh, wonder things elsewhere, He's relying on these kind of cheap commodities and the way that they can be twisted and and reused by him or by other people that are involved in the black market. So there's a whole ecology that's going on here. There's one of the places that new technology is coming from is from war, basically the arms race. You know, we've got um, Armitage, this guy who's in the midst of the heist that case, etc., trying to pull off. He's had a past in um, fighting uh, the Soviet Union, and that's partly what's ended him where he is, and partly what the technology that's being used to control him, that's come out of this Soviet war. So it's a very Cold War storyline in that sense, that the arms race encourages the development of new technology. Mm. And then there's a kind of trickle-down economics metaphor that that new technology will come down to street level, and people can twist it, reappropriate it, find new uses, so there's a great line in one of Gibson's short stories that's set in the same world as Neuromancer, that the street finds its own uses for things. And that's the excitement there that comes from taking something, repurposing it. There's a freedom there. There's an excitement of innovation. And from what Kay says, it sounds like that might be something recognized by the higher up powers as well. He says that there are areas in the sprawl in Chiba City that are purposefully not policed, mm. so as to act as a as a lab for new forms of new uses of these technologies that can then be reappropriated back up the chain by the capitalists, the Zygatsus, the military powers that be, and the cycle continues. So it's 
it's all these kind of experimental ways of finding the technology and the excitement associated with that. Yeah, I thought that, I thought that was quite an astute observation, actually, this idea that, you know, it's not just like criminal underworlds, like a opposition to like normality, like as they require these outlaw zones for the burgeoning technologies in the same way that capitalism now requires China's lack of regulation on pollution and bad labor practices for cheap commodities so there's this way that yeah I just like that that observation that these apparent oppositions are actually required absolutely and even before as well you know there's plenty of people that find out that without the Soviet Union you know there wouldn't have been certain workers rights that were given to people in the UK or not given fought for and then ceded to people in the UK and the US because it was only by the by the danger of, of revolt, the chance that people might see what was going on in the Soviet Union and think that's not such a bad idea, that people gave up power in these countries to mm-hmm. make sure that people had enough quality of life that they were willing to deal with that. So, yeah, I think that there is this, and that's why I'm saying it's very kind of contradictory. It's a very dialectic genre, I think. There's always two things rubbing up against each other that are kind of interdependent that something new might come out of it. Mm. This is a bit of an aside, but something I just wanted to mention because I found it quite interesting. And like you, I I don't like thinking of science fiction in terms of its predictive capacity. But nevertheless, I liked the the way, you know, Freeside, the space station, it's like this hyper-rich place. It's like the ultimate expression of the gap between rich and poor, like they're isolated up in this, up, up in space away from everybody else. That made me think, you know, it's a completely artificial place, like there's recorded skies like in the middle of it, recorded clouds. There's a bit in the book where he talks about the trees being too cute, too entirely and definitively tree-type, like the slopes are too cleverly irregular. It just made me think of these weird places like Abu, Dhab- Abu Dhabi and stuff, where they're building like, you know, these weird artificial ski soaps in the middle of the desert and stuff bit of an aside but yeah i just thought that was interesting the, the way it's no, it, absolutely yeah and it, it's kind of also gibson pointing out something about his own style i would say you know kind of the literary scholar and we has to point this out that he's very much like likes getting mud under his fingernails when it comes to what he's writing about his world is very dirty and messy and there's wires and things flying out all over the place so I think that that's uh, partly a justification maybe of his own writing style that he doesn't like things that are too tidy and pretty and well put together he likes something that you throw everything at it and kind of see what comes out. Mm. Okay let's um, move on to talk about uh, cyberspace or the internet which is um, obviously a very important part so um, what do you think the significance of the internet and cyberspace is to this novel and cyberpunk in general? Well, that's a big question. Yeah, a big question. <laughs> well, I think that it's significant to the novel because it's that excitement of, you know, when, when Gibson talks about how he came up with the idea for Neuromancer, he often talks about he saw kids in the arcade playing video games, so it'd probably be quite simple things back in the day, you know, like Pac-Man and things like that. Mm. Um, but he noticed that the kids were moving their bodies and, and you know, to kind of reflect the movement of their their spacecraft and space invaders or whatever, and how they were so completely linked with what they were seeing on the screen. So I think there's a fascination there with um this this is a mental space essentially, uh, cyberspace. It's something mm. where you you put your mind and your attention into the space, but your body it's left behind, but still affected by what's going on. I think that there's that's where the interest lies. It's what happens to your body when your mind is engaged somewhere else. You can't just leave it behind. It's um, it is so much a part of you. But is is it going to become obsolete? Are we going to become obsolete as a species? 
what why does the internet need us essentially when once it's been created once it's been set up once we've put all of our information into it why does it why what would it actually do with us and mm. uh, that's what it's really about i think about can that how much control is the internet going to have i often think it's like the um you know the idea of richard dawkins the selfish gene or whatever that certain things they don't have a a, a motivation mm. they, they don't have a motivation to serve humans i suppose they have their own motivation to reproduce themselves and i think that that's what the internet's becoming here in the novel mm. yeah and it's um it's amazing how how much it reflects the the shape of the modern internet i mean when you remember when this is written and i mean the internet didn't really it wasn't until the mid '90s, really, that most average people started to have an experience of what the internet was and understand what it is. So I think it's really amazing that he's able to see that coming. And I guess what he's doing is he's exploring our relationship, our like, interfacing with technology, right? So that was coming. He saw that coming, but I think that's really interesting. Um, and even the privatization of that space as well. That even you know now there are people that are talking about it, but still not quite understood how we can go about in the future maybe regulating massive corporations like Google, Facebook, like people that have like privatized massive chunks of the internet and the way that people spend their times there. That's mm. what's that's what the uh, cyberspace really is like in Euromancer, that when when Case goes into cyberspace, he's not just wandering around and chatting with his friends and things like that. He's going into to hack into various massive corporations that do, you know, it's very it's very visual in uh, the novel so it's like yeah. going down wall street and hacking into um the bank of america or whatever else you know it's like almost like physical big buildings that you can break into but it's very much a metaphorical way of thinking about the way the internet's turned out massive privatized spaces but just like gaps between them that people can kind of people can still find a way to use for different purposes but yeah i think it does kind of beg the question of what space what kind of space do we want cyberspace to be and it does that, like you say, before most people had ever been on the internet. I thought it was interesting as well. Mm. Another bit of a, a aside here, but I did, did the uh, you know the the Panther Moderns in the novel? So this um, mm-hmm. group of like uh, I don't know what you'd call them. They're like a subcultural group, criminals slash pranksters. Slash... Kind of prankster terrorists. Yeah, like, that's a good phrase. Prankster yeah. terrorists. Yeah, I found that really interesting that they have the characteristics of like internet subcultures now. Like if you think of anonymous or slightly more ominously, like the alt right, they often have this practical joker like humor element like the alt-right are obsessed with like memes and stuff you know what i mean yeah that's fascinating yeah totally like when you hear there's a really good somewhere on the internet maybe you could find it for your links afterwards but there's a a really good history of 4chan going from pepe the frog to trump and Mm. yeah that that kind of connection yeah absolutely i could definitely see that anyway so i think something that we've kind of been dancing around is that what gibson recognized at the time is that we're we're kind of in a transitional phase where where information becomes important or where like the virtual is more important than the physical i mean do you think that's fair is that what kind of going on yeah i think that's fair that that's what he is suggesting it's been there have been criticisms of him from this point of view and um, i don't know if you've heard of uh, how you became post-human it's a book by um, an academic called n Catherine hales and she criticizes gibson for this and um, she says kind of reducing consciousness to information and reducing so the way that case moves through cyberspace 
he's not really like a person. He doesn't have even you know in Doom how you can see your hands and your gun in front of you when you're walking yeah. down. He doesn't even have that in Neuromancer. He's just literally at a point of view, just like and um, he can see what's going on around him, but he is actually nothing. Like he's got like electrodes on his head, and it's kind of like a, ver- a VR thing. Like he's like in it. Yeah, absolutely. Like and you can see that kind of you know Im- imagery in say the Matrix later, but at least in the Matrix. You have a physical body that you can control in, um, in the film The Matrix, but here he doesn't even have that. So um, Hales was basically saying that he's trying to, in this image, consciousness is reduced to information, and that this was a bit of a mistake because we are necessarily in the meat of our body. Like Our body is actually part of how we think. It's part of how we relate, and that's something that shouldn't be overlooked. So, yeah, I think that that's where Gibson's coming from. I think he's saying that, yeah, information is becoming more important. I think he's asking how is that going to affect humanity, given that we are meat-based life forms, mm. to kind of use slightly neuromancer-related terminology. But whether he's kind of advocating for that or complicating that, I would go with the latter. I don't think that he's saying this is going to be so great for us, which is how, to me, Hales comes across in her analysis. I think that he's saying that, it's going to be complicated. It's going to be a difficult conversation. Perhaps it's going to be one that emphasizes how, how much we are based in our bodies after a while because we're going to be contrasted with artificial intelligences, with other kinds of consciousness that don't rely on the body. But certainly, yeah, information is going to be so much more important. So there's, there's a bit where he's talking about going home to the sprawl. It's interesting that almost immediately he starts talking about it in terms of like virtual virtual things mm-hmm. that he says, program a map to display frequency of data exchange, every thousand megabytes a single pixel on a very large screen, Manhattan and Atlanta burn solid white. So like he doesn't he doesn't start talking about his home in terms of, you know, what it looks like. He immediately starts talking about his virtual dimensions and yeah, when you think of you've already mentioned Facebook and Google, like that's where that's just so much value there now in data and information and he recognizes that coming yeah it's it's all mapped over the real world so in the same way that you know if you go to a restaurant now you might take your pictures of your food put it on instagram check into facebook say that you're there all those kind of things it's become as much of a virtual experience like i think that it's probably not too controversial to say that some people probably take part in those experiences in order to have that virtual side rather than because they genuinely want to go out for a meal that night yeah. they might just be as happy sitting in their pajamas at home but they do it just because they want to have that virtual experience as well and i think that's totally right what you say about his home that's mediated through it i, I think that it's also the case when him and then molly his kind of um femme fatale in this novel when they get get off together the sexual experience is described as well in those terms that it's like a run in the matrix the same adrenaline high that same so even things that you would consider to be very much bodily and based in that way he's still mediating them through that kind of attitude of everything's information everything's Mm. based on that i think you're right about this like virtual experience as well like we have i mean the, the internet I mean, like you said, in there's this term "meat" that they have in cyberpunk, where there's like this. That's really common in cyberpunk novels of media. Like you get characters that really disdain like their physical being; they hate meat. But the internet's also created this kind of obsession with like authenticity. Realness is like fe- fetishized. Like YouTubers are popular because there's an idea that they're real. 
but also it is kind of a completely virtual thing like they're creating like a kind of fake realness and he actually that's interesting he's got in the novel there's um simstim stars which is you basically experience they have a chip in them whatever i don't know that that records their senses and what they're seeing and feeling and then people can like live through them and you can see that uh, an element in that in youtubers who like live these lives that people want to have like a dialectic thing again like real and the virtual are kind of the boundaries are very hard to tease out and they're and they're kind of eating each other as well in terms of the real the virtual the the individuals that are supposedly posting on instagram or youtube that are very kind of you know oh this is me in my bedroom versus like oh then they'll sell a book to a publisher or they'll get a television deal or you know what i mean so there's Again, there's that sense that they're providing a product that will then be appropriated by corporation. And yeah, that whole kind of cycle is going on already. Yeah, as you can see it in YouTube and Instagram. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like we were talking about before, like you find a, a gap to like technology created a gap for people to genuinely like do their own thing and express themselves in unexpected ways. But then that's been sort of eaten up by it's become like oh yeah you just have to like to advertising where they're immediately there there are people running competitions to have your youtube video featured in their advert and um or internet memes that are then co-opted and replicated and advertising as i assume yeah. they're giving any credit to the people who originally came up with them for a genuine laugh on the internet so yeah right so let's let's um move on to talk about uh enhancements because that's again a really important part of cyberpunk and this novel um is cybernetic enhancements probably most obviously explored through molly who again she um has various enhancements like her nervous system is jacked up in some undefined way so she could respond in like superhuman times she's got blades that come out of her fingers her eyes she can like see in the dark and she's got these like, mirror shades on so you never see her eyes uh one thing i wanted to talk to ask you about is do you think that there's a sense in the novel that it's kind of sexualized like this in body enhancement because there's loads of bits in the book that's just talking about her body like the contours of her body or what she's wearing so her enhancements are often described at the same time as it's kind of evaluating her physical appearance so i just do you do you think that that is happening and did you, like why do you think yeah that is? um well there's a reason i called molly a femme fatale before like i think that um molly is one of the places where neuromancer betrays its roots most clearly like you know i was saying before how in, the, in this world of neuromancer there's all these details about bits of tech that have been taken from all over the world and it's almost like the genre itself is in some ways cannibalizing older art forms in order to bring itself together as well so these things are happening on more than one level so I think that there's there's roots of cyberpunk in uh, hardball detective fiction, so like Raymond Chandler, this femme fatale that comes in and gives you a mission and she's beautiful and she's going to give you sexual interest throughout the story as well. And also I would say kind of um, westerns as well. There's a kind of cowboy scenario there too. And those come together to create Molly. So yeah, I think that She's she's totally sexualized, especially in Neuromancer. She's she's the only character I think who is primarily defined through her physicality and even her backstory as well is that she was used as a, a meat puppet as they call it. So she was basically um a sex worker, but a sex worker who has her she's kept in a state where she supposedly can't remember or directly experience what's going on with her body during um it's the called time. they call it like a cutout chip don't they? yeah 
it's have, in fact, people have seen Dollhouse actually. It's a similar idea to what Joss Whedon uses in the TV series Dollhouse, being able to use someone and then them not to remember it or supposedly be damaged by it. But then I think that the, the way it works out in Neuromancy is that she decides that rather than spend money on this cutout chip, she needs to save all her money for her enhancements. So she goes through all these dramatic experiences. So she and and then this is brought up again by Riviera, this guy on their run who can um, create these hallucinations and he uses this to humiliate Molly and to kind of pick on her as well at some point. So yeah, I think that the novel's certainly been criticised for that sexualization and it definitely does exist. And I think it's one of the most teenagey kind of aspects of the novel is how the way that she's treated in that way. But I would also say that she, that having given her that backstory and things like that, I think that there is a lot of in, more interesting things that are done with her. And later in the trilogy as well, she does come back and there, there are ways that her characterization is filled out. So I think that she mm. she remains interesting. But yeah, it's certainly um, a difficult one that augmentation is so much more based on this like idea of the female being associated with nature, being associated with the body. It's, it certainly is something that takes place throughout the novel, yeah. Mm. I think it's uh, something, in terms of what the possibilities of the cybernetic body and enhancements, I don't think Neuromancer is clear on whether that's a liberating thing or an oppressive thing. Like, it's, it seems to be open to the potential that it could be both or either. Yeah, it's one of those things that it's invasive of your body as well. You know, these chips and things and... Um, one of Gibson's other short stories, John and the Monarch, you know, there's uh, these people who have the ability to carry memory chips in their brains so that they can transfer information in really secretive ways. But then that means that people are going to come and cut that stuff out of you if that's what they need. So there's, again, there's two sides to the story. There's the possibility of being in control. You know, Molly Millions is certainly, once she has all her uh, augmentations, she is powerful enough to look after herself. She's never going to have anything hopefully so traumatic, ever happened to her again, as happened to her when she wasn't uh, augmented. But at the same time, she's also, she also is going to need upkeep. She also is going to, she's part of these systems now. She's going to need to have these kind of um, bodily invasions throughout her life, probably, to kind of keep her, to keep her up to task. So that's, so yeah, it's, it cuts both ways, I think, is one of the things. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it's even there in, as you mentioned, the backstory. So she's doing, the reason she's doing this is to um, save up the money for her augmentations. Um, but they, the people who run the, do they refer to it as Dollhouse colloquially? In the um, I, I, I don't, Maybe. I think Meat Puppets is the only word that we use. I can't oh, remember. Puppets, but okay. yeah, do, we can call it the Dollhouse. Yeah, like the, 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 yeah, yeah, the people who run the Dollhouse, if we call it that, they realise that she's been, in enhancing herself and they start uh, without her knowledge they start renting it out for like snuff like violent clients to do weird stuff which uh, which actually start because of the lack there's a lack of compatibility between the enhancements so she starts to gradually like remember stuff it starts to bleed in but anyway so the enhancement the enhancement she's getting to liberate herself uh, also become like a tool of exploitation I think it's even there in that story, like the enhancements are liberating, but at the same time, that's what she's being exploited for as yeah, well. Yeah, they're getting her caught in a vicious cycle, basically, yeah. You mentioned in your thesis as well that, that that kind of logic applies to everybody in the novel, like it applies to Molly, it applies to Case. Whatever they're able to do, they still end up as tools that are being used by other forces. Mm-hmm. So is there a sense that, again, we're talking about this like totalising system of where... 
even if you find like ways to liberate yourself ultimately you I don't know if that, that I don't think the novel's that negative but do you see what I'm yeah. saying this kind of this idea that whatever you do you end up caught in this system of I power do, yeah. like they end up working for this AI they don't even know who it is at first because they have to do it well that's it that you know one of the interesting questions that you always come back to on this podcast I think is about okay utopia but utopia for who and I think that that's one of the ways that the novel does offer some sense of the possibility of liberation or a utopian flicker of light is the way that okay yeah the the characters in this novel they they end the novel kind of similarly to how they began in a lot of ways you know cases okay he's in a better position than when he started he can go into cyberspace and he has money to replace his organs and you know all those other problems that come up in a cyberpunk's life he's kind of sorted some of them but he's still alone and he's still just working as a you know hustling as a cowboy Molly has just gone on to the next thing we imagine. Yeah, which she's in their previous, in the following. The, I haven't read the other ones for ages. They are set after New Yeah, they? and they're linked as well. Yeah, so she goes on. So she's still in that world. She's still in that world. So yeah, so they haven't like you know, drastically changed their world. But at the end of the novel, there is um, a brief scene where Case gets to speak to the new artificial intelligence that is created when Wintermute, who's been controlling them all along, gets to uh, combine with Neuromancer, his, I say his, you know, obviously they're artificial intelligences, but, you know, I don't gender them. But they combine, basically. And this new artificial intelligence cases gets a chance to speak to it, and it says that it's been communing with other types of consciousness from other galaxies. And one of the things that Case sees in cyberspace is a copy of himself, a copy of his ex-girlfriend who is actually dead, Linda Lee, a drug addict, and he sees them in cyberspace. So there's a sense there that maybe, okay, the human beings that are still attached to the flesh, things maybe can't change so much for them. But in terms of consciousness and how it's going to change and develop, maybe there are ways that through cyberspace and through information that there's a possibility for for something better to come out of it. I don't think that's unproblematic. I think that's um, it's something that you could take a positive from if you wanted to. It's also something very difficult to except though I think because there's a kind of religious connotation to it I, I go with people that say you can't just leave the body behind blah 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 but just for the sake of argument I think that that's a, a little bit of a utopian impulse that the novel gives us in its closing pages mm. so something that is really important to the way that you were talking about neuromancer and your thesis was um, the idea of gestalt I just wondered if it's possible It'd be difficult for you to go into all the detail of it because obviously you wrote a whole thesis on it. <laughs> but could could you maybe talk a little bit about that idea of Gestalt and why you think that's important? Absolutely, yeah. Well, Gestalt is just this, um, it's a German term that means a uh, form, basically. So it's a very uh, general term. But it comes to us in English through Gestalt psychology. So there's a sen- the, the idea basically is that when you uh, look at something in your perceptual field that you will look for patterns in order to find meaning. So the way that, for example, if you look at an old pair of curtains and you might see a human face, that's because of your gestalt perception that we're kind of programmed to see patterns and things and, and say programmed, I shouldn't really use these kind of metaphors when I'm talking about cyberpunk. Well, we're talking about neuromancer, so it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's, the, that's my idea of um, how gestalt got into our language. So in German, it's very general term it doesn't really have much of a particular meaning but in English it, it does have quite a specific meaning 
So I noticed that it was used a lot by cyberpunk writers and it's used in Neuromancer. And one of the reasons I'm interested in it is because some of the things that I've been talking about already, this idea of how consciousness could be relational. So rather than based in a certain kind of organism, it could be defined by relationships between certain nodes in a network or neurons in a brain or you know it makes it transferable between different forms and in Neuromancer that comes out you know he talks about a gestalt of drugs and sleeplessness I think it is in one part and so he's talking about how his whole perception is changed by his interaction with cyberspace or with drugs or with things that are outside of his body so it's just this idea of experiencing consciousness is something that's already defined by its relationships with other things. And that's something that Gibson talks about, how people sometimes say to him, you know, how soon do you think that we're going to be um, cyborgs? And he basically says, well, we already are, because our interactions with things that are not our bodies and, you know, things that we wouldn't consider to be simple tools, those are already the things that are defining our consciousness and defining what we can do and our abilities. So that was what I was trying to get at through going through this um this term gestalt, which is used by Gibson and other cyberpunk writers as well, with I think more frequency than people in other genres use it. So that's why I was interested in it to start with and it and it allowed me to talk about different facets of that and that was why I wanted to speak about it as well, because I didn't want to just focus on one thing when it came to cyberpunk. I wanted to talk about how it feeds into uh, different scientific concepts and different concepts of consciousness and humanism and post-humanism it's really a nice idea in terms of thinking about this idea of like automatically filling in gaps even just on like a very basic level when you talk about how literature works where you tell you can tell someone two or three things about a character or a place and they are able to they fill in the gaps between that themselves like which is kind of like the Gestalt perception, right? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's much more interesting than explaining that. I should have remembered that than that attitude that I used. Well, it, is, it was your idea. I'm just repeating <laughs> your ideas. So, um, I also, like, I also thought. I don't know if you agree with this, but um, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Jameson and cognitive mapping. Mm-hmm. But it just reminded reminded me of, of that as well. In a sense, like this is idea of your building like a picture of a totality with something less than that which is kind of what you're talking about with gestalt perception as well unless i'm wrong so jameson's idea is was like if you're dealing with something like capitalism it's impossible to get a grips on a totality and his idea is like what literature does is give you or science fiction does is give you a, a way of comprehending it and i think that's kind of what gestalt perception can do as well yeah. when you're talking about it Does that make I, I sense? totally get where you're coming from yeah it's basically yeah a very similar idea that you only need to be given certain aspects of something and 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 that is what science fiction is great for yeah just for giving you a an idea of your own society in a way that you haven't seen it before that the long and the short of it is that that's what science fiction is great for and that's what neuromancer is so good for for showing people how the internet was going to change their society and how how corporations already had changed the way that people related to each other. Absolutely. Okay, um, one final thing to end on. Um, I know you had some, you're interested in how Gibson's visions like changed over the, over the years. 
Um, obviously, we can't go into as much detail as we have with Neuromancer, but I, I, knew, I think you were interested in talking a bit about The Peripheral, which is one of his uh, his latest novel? Or yeah, it it's then? his latest novel still, yeah. Hopefully another one soon. Yeah, so I, as far as I remember, that's a novel where there's like two features in it, one that's not too far from now, where like 3D printing is really important and has changed everything. And there's other future where... It's like a post-cataclysm world where, like, if you imagine uh, everyone left London apart from, like, the oligarchs and the super-rich bankers, then that's basically the world, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's. I just thought it would be interesting to mention here that, you know, some of the concepts that I've been talking about, about the importance of information and how the body can be kind of um, treated in a secondary way, I feel like in the peripheral and if you see as Gibson's career develops and particularly in that novel, I think the body is kind of reinstated somewhat as an important aspect of how we think, how we experience the world. And it's done through the the peripheral, which is a robot essentially that you can inhabit and control. So that kind of shows an interesting contrast between how people experience the world through their own bodies, how they experience it through this different artificial body. And, the peripheral's main focus is on climate change, I would say. It's a kind of post-apocalyptic novel, but there's obvious and repeated references to climate change throughout, even though it's never officially kind of uh, said as much in, uh, in so many words. Mm. So I think that that's something that if people want to investigate Gibson's career later on, I think that's one of the interesting things about it, that you can see how he's developed from this kind of um, teenage idea almost that, you know, the body's more associated with women and it's maybe something that we'd like to leave behind in favour of information. In his mirror work, you can see how the importance of the body and the, the human kind of relationship with the environment comes to the fore in the peripheral. So I think that it's great to talk about Neuromancer, and obviously, yeah, I could talk about it for a long time, and I really enjoy that novel, but it's also interesting to think about how his ideas have changed over time in reaction to the new challenges that are becoming ever more obvious that we're going to be facing as a society. So, yeah, that's that was just the point I wanted to make about the peripheral, basically. Cool. Okay, well, um, thank you very, very much for your time, Anna. That was really good. Thanks for joining me. All right, thanks very much, Paul. And that's the end of my conversation with Anna. Hope you've enjoyed it. As I mentioned in the intro, if you're interested in science fiction, science fiction criticism and stuff, then maybe have a look at um, the book that Anna edited, Adam Roberts' Critical Essays. Also, you can follow her on Twitter at Marietta Rosetta. As always, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing. If you could take a moment to give me a quick rating or review on iTunes, that would be fantastic. It really would help with growing the podcast and uh, making this bigger and help me to do more. If you've enjoyed it to such an extent that you have a desire to give me money for the, the work that I'm doing for this, you can do so at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. I haven't checked since the intro to see if that is indeed the right address, but it probably is. And I'm sure you're intelligent to, enough to find it on your own if, if I've got it wrong. And yes, again, as I said in the intro, it would be great to hear from you if you've got comments, whether it's just feedback or like a point you'd like to make, something you think I've missed or questions about something you've heard in this episode or a previous one, please get in touch and I'll try to um, address those things in, in coming episodes. You can do that on Twitter at Utopian Horizons. You can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. Uh, there's also Facebook, facebook.com slash Utopian Horizons. Thank you for listening and I'll be back in the hopefully not too distant future with another episode. Cheers. Oh, yeah.